Hello, and welcome to another IBMS pod. In this month's episode, we speak to academic cardiologist, Dr. Ramin Shakur, about everything from football to which vice it's best to give up if you can only ditch one. Spoiler alert, it's smoking. After which, Francis Youngblood joins us for Lab Life to discuss playing with the London Gay Symphony Orchestra and much, much more. But first up, as always, the news. Welcome to this month's IBMS News. Biomedical Science Day was celebrated on the 24th of June and was our biggest year yet on social media, with a reach of 9.5 million people throughout the day. We were overjoyed to see the celebrations of the profession across the UK. Have a look at how the profession celebrated in our photo gallery on Facebook. The winners of the At the Heart of Healthcare competitions for Biomedical Science Day had a record number of entries. Head online now to find out who won. The IBMF has awarded two new honorary fellowships to Jill Rodney and Jane Mills. Jill recently retired from her position as Chief Executive of the IBMF after a decade in the role. Jane is currently Head of Program for COVID-19 Testing with NHS England and Improvement. At our annual general meeting last month, we announced the election of four new council members. Dr. Sarah Pitt and Tamina Hussein were elected as national members, while Angela Jean-Francois was elected for London and Jennifer Collins for the North East. You can find out more about our new council members and all our other stories on our website. So welcome to Dr. Ramin Shakur, who is an academic cardiologist from MIT. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Ramin. Thank you, Rob. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Ah, pleasure. So could you say a few words of introduction, Ramin? Tell us a, a bit about your current role and what you do, please. Yeah, so uh, my background is in academic clinical uh, cardiology initially and moving more to the scientific side. Uh, we are sort of uh, very strongly basic science related and work on uh, two big areas of regenerative medicine and precision medicine within the umbrella of cardiovascular disease. And you're an academic cardiologist. Um, in what way do you kind of, did you bridge the gap between treatment and research and academia? What kind, what kind of position do you occupy on that spectrum? So initially, when I was growing up, um, I went down to sort of went to medical school uh, in the UK. And then having been through medical school, trained in general medicine. But throughout the whole course of that, I just very early on, even as a med student, got the research bug. So, you know, having done sort of our sort of uh, researches in, in, in my bachelor's year, um, I was a Wellcome Trust studentship at the Sanger Center very early on. Then I did an MPhil on immunology. And then I finished off my clinical training. And so I've always really loved the basic sciences. Uh, and then the translation side was to see how that scientific discoveries and scientific questions really apply uh, on the physiology of the body. And then when I went back into uh, finishing off my clinical work, uh, training in cardiology in London, I won a Wellcome Trust uh, fellowship. And so I went back to Cambridge uh, to do my PhD. And after that, 
the rest is really history where it's just been carrying on with that sort of research, developing that work, developing sort of that group-led um, collaborative work. And it's, um, it, it's quite a timely moment to be talking to you with, uh, with the football and Christian Eriksson. Um, were you watching the football when that happened? Did you hear about it afterwards? Or? Yeah, so I was watching the uh, uh, bit of the highlights and um, I, I just saw in the news how um, they sort of stopped the video as he was going across for the ball. Um, and I knew something was uh, sort of not quite right. And then uh, family and friends had sort of sent me the clips that they saw on TV at the time. Obviously, it was a very shocking uh, viewing for everyone concerned. But you're absolutely right, Rob. That's our sort of main area of interest, sudden cardiac death um, and sort of arrhythmias. And the whole promise of um, how do we understand the mechanism of something like this. Obviously, um, Christian Eriksen uh, had full medical tests when he was in uh, uh, Italy where he plays and prior to the games, they have strong medical teams. But the, the reality of the situation is here's a very fit and active uh, 29-year-old who suddenly collapsed and he didn't know anything about it. He certainly had no uh, previous history to say that this was going to come on. So it must be a great uh, sort of uh, distress to him and his family. But I would say the real uh, strong point to come out of the whole episode is the amazing work of not just the medical team on the ground, but his fellow um, uh, colleagues and sort of players who started doing CPR. Uh, mm. And it goes back to the case um, where I actually saw uh, similar clips with the Fabrice Muamba case going back about a few yeah. years back. He had no cardiac output for 70 minutes and uh, lives to say, say that, you know, lives to sort of see the whole thing. And you think about that, his downtime was about 15 minutes, Christian Eriksen's. How is it possible to survive with no cardiac activity for 70 minutes? Well, well, so, I would so, just assume you'd die. <laughs> so this is the whole premise that he, again, was, um, Fabrice Mamba was saved by the fact there was a cardiologist in the Tottenham Hotspurs uh, fans area who came across, began CPR, uh, and through the whole process, the heart, when it sort of stops or is not beating efficiently goes through a stunning period and uh, what i presume is what they were keeping the cpr it's a great efficient way of keeping circulation going especially the brain um and uh, uh, major organs to actually keep it going where he was then stabilized in hospital um and it was a long recovery back for him as you saw um for fabrice muamba but it did mean the end of his career um, what that means for Christian Eriksen, I don't know. It will, certainly, the early tests from what I've read uh, seems that they they still haven't found uh, a pure cause. Um, but is exactly what we were interested. In. Our interest is on inherited heart diseases, muscle diseases of the heart, and these muscle diseases of the heart called cardiomyopathies are one of the leading causes of sudden cardiac death and irregular rhythms and heart failure. So it's um, not as rare as you think 
we think it's roughly about one in 500 have this sort of mutation. But whether we see it or not clinically um, is something that is of active interest. Myself and Jordan, who is uh, also on, on the podcast with us today, uh, both do a fair bit of running. Mm. Should, should we be running slowly and being concerned about pushing ourselves too far? Is this something where there are risk factors or is it just one of these things where it's like, there's nothing you can do, just get on with your life and hope you don't suddenly keel over one day? Yeah, great question, Rob. I've had a lot of these sort of questions, you know, people coming out and sort of I emailing said, um, and uh, it, it, it's, it is a sort of these sort of episodes, especially global episodes like this, make you stop and think. And what I would say is there's nothing to change uh, your lifestyle. Um, it just means that you will be more cognizant and aware of your body. Now, what that means is the chances of this happening like a Christian Erickson remain extremely low for the majority of us. But the key point is, how do you know if it's going to happen? Because you're not got an ECG strapped to your chest. Uh, how do you know that when you're pushing yourself, that you're not pushing yourself to a certain level, which could be harmful? We don't know. Um, and it's common things being common. Most people will be fine. And it's that small minority of people who may have something hidden or sort of not really come to fray that's really of interest from a genetics perspective or from especially another point of due to COVID where we know COVID induces some arrhythmias, electrical changes, causes inflammation of the heart. And this is an area where we're all working to better understand our bodies now that we're sort of trying to get on top of the actual virus itself. So I what I would say is, you know, there's it's nothing to be alarmed about for the majority, but it certainly makes you think about to take your own body symptoms to heart. So if you're pushing yourself and then you think, you know, am I getting a bit too much of a twinge continuously? Are you getting sort of something that you otherwise think, oh, you know, nothing to worry about? It may just focus your attention to understand that symptom, but I wouldn't get sort of um worried or carried away with it um, uh, because I think for the majority uh, of people, like I say, um, this uh, will not be a, something that would all affect them. Yeah. And um, as an editor, I notice words wherever I go and kind of phrasing, bad phrasing, good phrasing. As someone who works in cardiology, are you constantly aware of what your heart is doing? And if so, does that drive you a little bit insane? <laughs> or have you able, are you able to ignore us? <laughs> yeah, so, so you say, you know, doctors and sort of clinicians and even scientists, they're, they're good at prescribing the problems and telling people to do, but they're probably the worst to actually take heed of themselves. But it's interesting you say that point, actually, Rob, because when we talk about um, being aware of your own heart, we're only really aware of it when we push ourselves, right? So. Unless we're doing the next Olympic trials, you and I aren't really going to be seeing much difference in our normal exercise activity. But we should be cognizant, like I, when we go for walks or anything, it's not something that one comes to mind except when you are pushing yourself. So having a comparison, especially when you're running, um, which is great to hear, both of you doing that, 
you get a feel for what your body can cope with and what your mean and average is. So always thinking about that uh, to say, you know, what's different from today as it was yesterday um, is a good way of keeping track of how your body is actually talking to you. Brilliant. And you, you mentioned cardiomyopathies earlier. That's um, some terminology that a lot of our readers won't be familiar with. Can you kind of flesh that out a bit more for us and what exactly they are? So cardiomyopathies are the family of diseases which are, uh, refer to the heart muscle. So the cardiomyopathy is enlargement of the heart muscle, which causes the if normally efficient pumping capacity of the heart to reduce. And when you stretch out and you elongate the whole heart muscle, it also affects the electrical capacity of the heart to induce electrical problems like the ones we saw with Christian Eric. So we want to talk a little bit now about the paper and the research you've done looking at the genetic changes that can actually cause some of these cardiomyopathies. So, I mean, how did it come about in the, in the first place? What did we know about genetic changes behind these inherited diseases beforehand? So, uh, so it's interesting. So my first introduction to the cardiomyopathies was um, as a sort of junior doctor. Uh, I was training in London and I saw the sort of inherited cardiac disease clinics. And the inherited heart, uh, heart, heart disease clinics in a lot of these specialist hospitals are where you get clinical geneticists, uh, cardiology clinicians, um, uh, sort of uh, research teams all together. And then you have patients with their families. Uh, and what intrigued me was due to the whole um, burgeoning field of sequencing and gene testing, we had an idea that certain people in their families have an increased risk than others in the population for enlargement of the heart without them to have any previous pathology. So what I mean by that is they haven't had a heart attack. They're otherwise being fit and well. But for some reason, their heart enlarge much, much bigger than would be normal for you and I. So there was a pathology there without any sort of trigger. And that's how the field of uh, inherited cardiology came about, where we, we knew that there wasn't sort of an uh, inherent uh, physiological attack coming from, say, a heart attack or oxygen, but we didn't quite understand why these patients were getting these anatomically enlarged hearts. And they were, it was happening in fairly young age groups. For example, the commonest cause for uh, people of sudden cardiac death uh, in less than 35 is actually due to cardiomyopathy. It's the, it's the most commonest cause in the world. And that is because the, it was the young, this sort of young age group of coming up from sort of the 25 plus age group, less than 35 age group who would be otherwise fit and well, no previous cardiac problems. And we see these sort of patients coming in saying, look, I'm getting short of breath, can't walk as far as I could before. Nothing to do with the exercise is actually because when you look into the heart, when you do this sort of echocardiogram, you see massive changes there. This change got me interested to ask a very, very difficult question, which I think all scientists uh, should ask. But when you have patients in front of you, 
they basically ask that question for you, which is, so what? Mm. Right? And it's the so what question, which I think fundamentally in a lot of basic science we forget to ask, uh, but is the driving force for our curiosity. You can be curious about the science and you can be curious about the pathology, the physiology, the molecular biology, all of which will increase our knowledge base. But the difference that I found was when I explained the sort of nuances and I understood a bit more about the molecular biology and the work that we were doing, when you go into ask uh, to patients in the clinic, they're saying, yeah, that's great. This nature paper is amazing. But so what for me? How is it going to actually affect me? What are the differences that you will make to treatment for me? And that's a very, very humbling point. And what I then started to look at was, well, that's a very valid point. Mm. And it's all well and good saying that we know the structural biology to an extent. But what was interesting in uh, this particular paper was we chose these particular mutations, troponin T mutations, simply because there is a very, very different type of treatments depending on where you have this mutation. Mm. For example, what we found is the troponin T is part of the troponin complex. And that complex is part of a huge subcomplex of the thin filament, the actual filaments that are the ores when muscle contraction takes place. Mm. So it's a vital component of that. But within that, some people are getting electrical problems like Christian Erickson. Other people are getting just heart failure, mm. as if they've had an enlarged heart and without any electrical problems initially. The treatment for this, very different. Very different. And what was worse, you couldn't pick it up early. So if you did an echocardiogram and you think, well, what's causing this electrical problem? It must be because I've got an enlarged heart. Not in this case. So there was no early uh, sort of um, physiological sign for us to say it's going to happen or it is likely to occur. It seemed to come on uh, in a mechanism that we weren't quite clear on, but we knew there was some genetics going on. And so what was interesting about this was when we looked at it, and I was looking into the whole process of the structural biology of this, we were very surprised to see that actually there was not much on the actual interactions because we don't have the full crystallized structure of these. So we couldn't just say this protein is going to attach to another protein. They have this intermolecular interaction based on that because we didn't have that data. Mm. So we had to start from uh, the ground up. And this is why I'm particularly proud of this paper and the, the way that it actually showcases multidisciplinary teams coming together. Mm. Strong scientific hypothesis-driven work. Uh, we didn't go on a fishing exercise here. We basically took step-by-step -step, uh, means to understand how do you work out based on the structure of a protein what the other likely interaction would be. We have homology studies from other species. Can we use that? Can we then also use that fact of having molecular dynamics? So we did testing of that. I All of that put together, we then added the clinical data from around the world. So it was the model first, then the clinical data.
So talk us through then this computer model. So, you know, I, I urge people to read the paper because yeah. that first figure one is a summary of how a dynamic system and model we built, which is to understand that in the face of a beating heart system, which requires calcium to come in, mm. what we found is that you have particular interactions that are due to calcium and those regions within the gene itself highlight areas of different clinical uh, phenotypes, but also clinical outcomes. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And those regions or uh, areas are actually very discrete and very independent of any other um, model that we've seen thus far. So it gives us now, hands up, at the moment, what happens in uh, sort of the whole spectrum, you go and see a clinical geneticist and they say, okay, we've got the mutation, you've got this variation, go and see the cardiologist. What I wanted to do is to make this more of a smooth, precision cardiology, precision medicine uh, clinic where you'd not only have a, two distinct areas, you'd speak to the geneticist, the genomics, and the clinicians, as well as the scientists, to say, look, we can get a plan for you because we know the extent of where the mutation is. We know what are the implications are of some of these mutations. So that would give us a heads up to say, should we be thinking about specific therapies similar to putting defibrillators in? Should we be thinking about giving tablets? And how that plays out um, as that patient moves forward. Mm. But you were saying earlier that it, you don't always know from symptoms that someone could suffer from this. So should we be screening everyone? Should we be plugging everyone's genetic data into this computerized system and seeing if there's any possibility it could occur? And then so, treating? So the, well, well, so the, the current screening methodologies um, are based on risk, right? So... Well, what we're doing now and what a lot of people do, if there's a family history or if there's someone's collapsed in the family or there's a history of heart problems in the family, you get screened that way. Mm-hmm. So we do a sort of like a pedigree screen, mom, dad, uncles, et cetera. So you get to build a picture. What's interesting now and what's exciting moving forward uh, is this whole genomic space that we've got going on where we're sequencing uh, initially 10,000, now 100,000 people, we're getting a lot of data to understand what are the early factors or early potential markets. We don't know the implication of that in real world, clinical world, because we can't go around saying, look, we'll put this device in before it happens. Yeah. Because you know that that's not the premise of what we're doing clinically. The premise of something doing clinically is it should be symptom-led. But in the genetics world, this, I think, is a bigger debate uh, for everyone, science and society, to understand that now that we're getting slowly into a state where we can have better understanding of data and we're getting to the whole notion, and we talk about this in the paper, about prognosticating data, you know, predictive analytics, as they're called, Mm. where does it end? When do you draw a line uh, for patients who then say, look, I had a test privately and I know that this is something that could happen. Um, Can you put a device in? Can you put treatment? What we're saying is that is not the way forward. The way forward is to be better aware 
so you can re-stratify people to say, look, if you have this mutation, maybe instead of seeing you every year, maybe you see you six months, or maybe we put on specific devices to see, which we otherwise not would have otherwise seen, put monitors like halter monitors so we can measure electricity, electrical outputs that you otherwise would have met. So it's trying to get ahead of the disease state in all cases. But what I'm really proud of this and, and the way we've done this is to do take it from the ground up, use the biology, understand the biology, and not put any sort of random um, sort of uh, extrapolation to say, look, this should be the next best thing since sliced bread. What I'm saying is this is something that has really helped us to understand and integrate a lot of data, and this should be uh, maybe a possibility for others and other groups to try and use and assimilate data rather than just come up with more and more data without really trying to understand how it all fits together in a complex system. Mm. And what's next? What's going to be your next project along these lines? So, so you know, that, that project took us a bit of time. Happy that the Wellcome Trust allowed us to fund that. What we have done, we've extended that. And over the last few years, we have actually looked at uh, specific therapies, what I would call pre- precision therapeutics, drugs designed for that particular variation mutation. Uh, and we have uh, currently uh, produced a drug and it has uh, gone through clinical trials. That is something that we are hoping to actually uh, publish fairly soon because we've got a real strong idea on the mechanism of how this particular uh, variation affects the bi- underlying biology and signaling within the heart cell. And so we were able to thwart some of the clinical symptoms that can occur as a result. So that's the next exciting thing that we have coming up soon. Mm. I'd, I'd be interested to know in the kind of the potential uh, tangible outcomes of this new kind of precision therapy. I mean, what could, what could patients potentially be seeing in the future there? So so a a great question, Rob. One of the things that we're seeing is if you look at the cystic fibrosis world, uh, the company Vertex have had FDA approval for specific genotypes of cystic fibrosis, not as a cure, but as symptom reduction in the whole output for cystic fibrosis. And what I'm viewing this as is currently, if you look at the way we're prescribing medication, it looks at the body in a very much linear system-led view. You've got a problem with the heart. Here's a tablet for the heart. The system is in the heart. Mm. You've got a problem in your lungs, so you treat the lung problem. But we all know it's a multi-systemic problem. It's a system-wide issue. The biology doesn't stop in one organ. It's working throughout the whole of that. This, I think, is where... Uh, where we're looking at these precision therapeutics, whereby we have found and we were able to repurpose drugs that you would have thought, well, what's that got to do with heart disease? But the biology and signaling of those particular um, sort of uh, small drug or small molecule-based systems actually affect not just gene transcription and signaling, but have an effect right the way through whilst also trying to keep the side effects of drugs down. So what I mean by precision therapeutics is saying, if we have a problem, 
in a particular variation or mutation, that sets off a whole cascade of signals that can lead on to what we see clinically. And what we're trying to get to a stage, and what I'm hopeful is to say, why are we waiting for the signaling to come to such a big array where we're trying to reverse a problem that began? Why can we not go back to the problem? So aspects of gene therapy, um, you know, people are looking on it using sort of gene therapy as a means to go back to the gene problem. But the issue I have with gene therapy is, you know, it's not just one problem sets off the thing. It's a multitude. So it's not, it's almost like the jack in a box where you drop one and it comes out, drop one and it comes out. So we are trying to um, get over the whole space of saying, how do we precisely uh, affect signaling, but also not affect outside organs and outside side effects? Fantastic. Thank you very much, Ramin. So now I'm going to hand you over to Jordan for our final section of the podcast, the quickfire round. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Rob. So we've got some quickfire questions for you. So the first question is, what are the three skill sets you need to get into this area of precision medicine? Uh, so three biggest skill sets, I would say, is strong grounding in uh, genetics, um, uh, an inquisitive mindset, and uh, a long determined um, personality, because you'll get a lot of failed experiments before you get to the right ones. Ah, oh, excellent. So I've got a list of five of the most common habits we might associate with causing diseases in the heart. Okay. Uh, and I just want you to tell me what you think would be the worst one or the most risky of the habits. So we've got okay. drinking alcohol, drinking mm. coffee and energy drinks high in caffeine, eating mm. junk food or foods high in sugar, salts and fats, over-exercising mm. and smoking. Which one of those is the most risky to your heart health? So the number one uh, would be smoking. Mm. Right? Why is that? So you've got smoke, and, and, and it's because the, the effect of smoking is so diverse, it impinges on all aspects of the physiology of the heart, not just increasing risk of furring up atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries. It also increases the arterial stiffness, increases risk of not just cancer, but the whole gambit for cardiovascular disease is actually much, much higher for smoking than any of the others. Well, then I would probably say quickly followed by the um, whole epidemic of overeating obesity um, as well as sort of uh, alcohol. Now, I put alcohol and overeating together because essentially when you're drinking a lot of alcohol, if you think about it, you're essentially having a lot of fat. Uh, in another term, because it's calorific liquid is what you're having. Uh, so if you have high calorific of anything and you don't burn it off, that's the whole effect of obesity and everything in moderation will negate that. But out of everything what you've said, I would put smoking as the one thing that if you can stop, that would have the most tangible real world effect uh, in reducing cardiovascular risk and fairly quickly. Mm. And the next sentence is, the one development in cardiovascular medicine I'm most excited about right now is? The one development in cardiovascular medicine that I'm most excited about is the uh, aspect of genome editing. 
and application of genome editing in cardiovascular disease for uh, not just modeling cardiovascular diseases, but also looking to translate that in the clinic. Thanks for joining us all the way from across the pond. So welcome to this month's Lab Life. This month, we're joined by Francis Youngblood. He's a laboratory manager in microbiology and virology at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. Outside of his work, he's a key musician and is studying for a PhD sponsored by the Antimicrobial Resistance Initiative, Precision AMR. Welcome to the podcast, Francis. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for having me. So you're a keen musician and you've actually done some work with the London Gay Sympathy Orchestra. Um, yeah. yeah. So can you tell us then how you started with music? Has this always been a passion of yours? Where did this begin? Yeah, sure. I, I will always remember. I think it was I was about 11 years old at high school yeah. and I just saw one of my friends actually playing the piano. And it was that moment I was completely engaged. So I said to her, oh, could you give me your teacher's contact details? And at that point, I started lessons and then it just kind of flew. So I, yeah, I started piano. Um, and then following that, I also took up the saxophone as well. Um, and at 16 years old, I decided, you know what, I, I really want to take up the violin. So, um, and yeah, and then it, when I got into university, that was really key because then they had a society one of my passions at university while studying biomedical science. So mm. I participated in the orchestra and we had different members, you know, from different courses joining. Um, and that was really great. There's the orchestra, there was a jazz band and I, I just loved it. I mean, the, the social aspect as well, but just making music. Um, and then actually uh, friends from university who lived in the Essex area contacted me about actually starting a jazz band group. So this started in Essex in Chelmsford and we uh, formed a group called the Jazzles. Um, kind of using Essex technical terms, <laughs> um, but it was a really, really good um, group to be with because we were all from different backgrounds, did different jobs. It was something just to kind of escape work as well because we we made like really good music, and then actually we eventually started playing at different events, and it was just so enjoyable. And like we got such good responses from people. How did you become involved with the London Gay Orchestra? Uh, can you tell me oh, a bit more about? Yeah, that? so I guess I still wanted to play with an orchestra like a, a large orchestra because I've never actually done that it was always a small orchestra so I kind of speaking to different people and a friend said oh have you looked at the London Gay Symphony Orchestra and I thought oh no I've not heard of them so I went to go listen to them play oh my goodness they had a concert it was just I was just sat in the church it was phenomenal the music mm -hmm. it was it was they were amazing yeah um, they're, they're such, really talented the, yeah very talented the musicians there I mean some of them are professional musicians. Some do completely different jobs. There's people from different backgrounds. It's, it's amazing. And they're so welcoming. So once I heard them play, I was like, right, that's it. I need to join so for the musical skills, but also to mix with the group. I mean, it's a mixed, diverse group. Again, it's an LGBT group, but also it's not, it's inclusive. But lots of other people are welcome to, to join and um, make music. And it's a friendly opening group. And that, they really welcomed me. Um, and I felt so comfortable we had a great time and I also got involved with the committee there as well. So I was social secretary and managed to create a lot of events. So, you know, a lot of socials trying to advertise our concerts. We actually bumped into Gokwan one evening. That was a really awesome, um, we got free champagne. <laughs> but yeah, one, eight, one company was in a, a bar that we were in when we were advertising and they just bought us all champagne. It was amazing. 
Um, we, I've had some great opportunities with the orchestra too. So we were actually on BBC Three and we were involved in a competition, which was the Great uh, British Orchestra competition. So mm. that was that was really amazing opportunity because we, yeah, it was just to showcase the orchestra and what they do. We've got to travel as well. So we've been abroad. Um, we've performed in uh, Paris and Amsterdam. So it was, we were there for their pride as well. So it was just nice to be with the orchestra as, you know, making music, but also um, socially too. And just to celebrate pride, it was awesome, awesome event. So mm. yeah, I, I love the orchestra. They're just so, so welcoming. It's, it's like a family um, and it's just nice to have something, you know, I, I love my job as a scientist. Um, mm. and manager but then also at the same time you need something to escape and I think having that opportunity to make music with people who you see as like family and friends is, is just is lovely and they're just yeah they're just they're just amazing and I I you know it's been a really tough time during Covid as well um mm. so I mean the orchestra are now coming back together at the moment so it's yeah it's 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 hopefully things are getting a bit back to normal and they can begin starting to make some music again so you mentioned Pride and I wanted to ask you about this as we've just had Pride Month and I know you've taken quite an active role in making sure biomedical scientists are represented at London Pride previously. So how important is it that biomedical scientists are represented at Pride and what more can be done to promote equality and dispel discrimination across the profession? Yeah, I think I think there's work to be done. I, th- I think sometimes people think, oh, is there? But it really is. I mean, when I started my career out as a biomedical scientist, as a trainee, I'd actually seen homophobia in the workplace, you know, prejudice. And it was really, I mean, I've experienced it too. And I was really kind of fearful in the sense that I thought, you know, because of my characteristic, because as a gay man, mm. I thought, you know, am I going to be discriminated? Will I not have that opportunity to you know, um, for my career to develop. I've worked hard and I think it's important for people to represent, you know, your and have equality because it, people can bring so much. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think in the past there hasn't been much in terms of the IBMS or the profession actually moving, you know, um, pride forward and kind of representing LGBTQ because I think it's not ever discussed about, but I think it's quite a key issue, but I think more is happening. So, I mean, there are hopes that actually the IBMS will march in London pride this year. Fingers crossed we're waiting to hear. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think just kind of representation that there are, you know, LGBTQ scientists as part of the workforce who contribute, who really bring, you know, a a lot to the, you know, uh, the profession. Um, And I think it's key that we, represent them and that they you know everyone has a fair opportunity Mm. what kind of stuff have you been doing to mark pride month so at at gosh we've been doing a number of kind of uh meetings panel meetings um socials social distance (laughs) events trying to meet up um and yeah just kind of representation on social media as well just to make awareness i think there's you know there's still a need for pride for people to be represented so we're hoping London Pride will go ahead in September um, and yeah engaging with people just to realise that there are within the healthcare scientist workforce there are LGBTQ members of staff there. Absolutely so I just wanted to touch on your PhD and some of the work you've been doing recently around this issue of antimicrobial resistance Uh, so your PhD is funded by the Precision AMR initiative and is helping to combat resistance to antibiotics and so I know you've recently also been involved in this new Rise of the Resistance Festival. 
which is dedicated to just this issue. So could you tell us a little bit more about Precision AMR and some of the talks and performances that took place at this new event? Yeah, yeah. So Precision AMR is a huge grant that's been given by the government in order, it's an initiative to basically improve antimicrobial prescribing and just, you know, the issues with AMR. Um, So basically we, as part of it, we had a virtual festival and that is basically to try and engage and raise awareness of the issue of AMR. And it's doing it through different events, so such as like panels, um, where there's discussion panels discussing different things, things that are not even discussed about. I mean, we talked about how do we engage with hard to reach people. And that was quite an interesting topic area, because what do you mean by hard to reach? Um, but, but I mean, uh, raising awareness of AMR to everyone from like patients parents, staff, you know, just to get get it out there. And I mean, we also try to use um, other means of engagement. So using the arts, so through kind of like a play or a comedy um, through shows. And, you know, that they are kind of key ways to engage with people because people like to watch shows or um, see a comedy. There was even a drag show about... Um, <laughs> someone called Cleb Stiella. <laughs> so yeah, having that kind of engagement to actually make people aware, also a sock puppet show. And, and it's just a way of trying to get that information across. Cause sometimes you can just talk to someone. Does mm. it actually go in? Does that information go in? And I, so I think using a different means of trying to engage and communicate is really, really key in order for things to go across. And so I think if you can drive that message through, then that's key. So the rise of resistance festival was really a big initiative just to engage with you know, clinicians, NHS staff, healthcare science staff, the public, and trying raising that awareness. And I mean, there was, you know, it was kind of going off on Twitter. There was a lot on social media trying to get people to come to these events so that they actually they engage with what is happening. Because I think, you know, within healthcare science, there has been a big focus on COVID, but I think we do need to remember there are other things that are going on in other disciplines. And so I think it's really key to remember that too. So what's the reaction been to the event it's been very i think it's been very well received i think people have really enjoyed it and um, i think they've learned a lot and i think it's definitely it's definitely made people think uh, i mean even myself even though getting involved with it having those panel discussions made me think because we talked about engagement with people and actually making people aware like oh this is happening and and so actually yeah it's been it's been i think it's been very well received and i i think i'm hoping that the message is going through and i think yeah we will definitely be doing it more those videos and shows are still available online thanks to francis for joining us on this edition of lab life and check out our show notes and the podcast blog on our website for more information about the work he does and to check out some of those performances from the rise of the resistance festival thanks so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode these podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye. <laughs>